Giannis. Two seconds. He'll get a shot off on the way. Hello, everyone. Welcome in to another episode of a Syracuse basketball podcast. Joined today by Christian Guzman and Dom Chiapapone, if I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> yeah, it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome in, guys. Uh, Syracuse wraps up a Maui Invitational event going one and two with losses to Tennessee and Gonzaga, both nationally ranked teams, and a win over Chaminade. Uh, a lot to talk about jam-packed event very eventful for Syracuse uh let's start Dom with you what stands out to you about Syracuse's showing in in the event I think the I think especially after Wednesday night's victory I think this is honestly the expected result like we knew that the 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 Maui gauntlet was going to be tough particularly with Tennessee and Gonzaga for different reasons they just have the clear town advantage by far but I think the more important question is I think we got a better sense of the ide- what the roles are for a lot of these players. Um, I think when you're looking at guys like J.J. Starling, Chris Bell, um, Naheem McLeod, especially, we got both signs of what their strengths are and I think the promise of that. But I think we also saw, especially against Tennessee and Gonzaga, some of the limitations they have. And I think what Adrian Autry's going to have to figure out here is and he'll figure this out over the course of the next, you know, four or five non-conference games, which I'm going to, I'll talk about later, but those are pretty big when you look at facing Virginia, facing Georgetown, Oregon, and then in the neutral site game that there's going to be a lot of plug and play. But I think honestly, the, the, my, my big, big thing is that this was an expected result, but also I was honestly pretty optimistic in terms of like, for the most part against Tennessee and Gonzaga, Syracuse was mostly in the realm of being at least close. It was, you know, for Tennessee, they were uh, trailing by, three to five points for majority of the game against Gonzaga. It was like eight to 10 until things kind of went out of proportion the last two, like last few minutes of both those halves. But I'm honestly pretty, I think, content with the results. I think especially the Shamanad win will bring a lot of more optimism over the next few days. And obviously I think heading to winter here, there's gonna be a lot of big games that the Orange are going to have to pull off here to kind of be on track once the ACC schedule kind of starts ramping up. Yeah, Don, like the result, I think, is not unexpected, you know, realistic expectations coming into the event, probably one and two, right? Um, How that looked on the court was very different. You know, I think if you want to follow the pattern, it's like Tennessee was a feeling of optimism. Maybe Gonzaga was a feeling of pessimism. And then the final game against Chaminade, you're feeling a little bit optimistic again. You know, they, they probably competed better with Tennessee than I would have expected coming in. And then on the other side, like, can hold me accountable. I actually picked Syracuse to beat Gonzaga. Uh, boy, was I wrong on that. Uh, they just were not competitive in that game, and then they just blew the doors off of Chaminade at, at the end. But uh, Christian, yeah, kind of, kind of along those lines. Like, are are your expectations for this team any different before they were coming into this game? No, I think everyone expected that if Syracuse was going to get a win in Maui, it was going to be against Chaminade. Everyone remembers Chaminade's a Division II school, meaning they're the ones who host the Maui Invitational in its regular format, so that's why they're in this field. But what you also attribute that sense of optimism to as well is a lot of the what we saw in this in those games was that Syracuse, like Tom said, could hang with some of the bigger teams. And I think there's more frustration that uh, from Syracuse fans that from that Syracuse couldn't close out those games instead of a feeling of defeatedness of oh, Syracuse just is not in a position where they can even be competitive against a ranked team, let alone just a power five team. Because this was a few first true tests of, okay, what does the Adrian Autry era look like? And, you know, there are definite signs of at least there is a direction of where the team needs to go. But the baseline is good enough that if you catch a team on a bad day, there's an opportunity for Syracuse. And I don't think we could say that a lot over the last couple of years. Yeah, when, when you look at this program and you look at this team and where, where they've been and where they are, coming into this event, I mean, th- those are two really good experienced teams. Like Tennessee has 
a couple fifth-year seniors on their roster. Uh, they're well-coached. Rick Barnes has been around this game a long time. Mark Few's been around this game a long time with Gonzaga. Um, you know, Syracuse just isn't quite there yet. And, like, that's normal. Like, you, you don't want to say that, that Syracuse shouldn't be held to a certain standard. It's, it's a historic program. It's obviously had great success. But transitions are hard. Like, if you look around the country, like, I don't know, look look at Villanova. Like, the, Villanova's struggling in a, in a post-Jay Wright world. Um, you know, North Carolina's struggling. I mean, obviously, Hubert Davis went to the national championship in year, in year one. Last year was a flop. They, they struggled uh, today against Nor- uh, Northern Iowa in the first half. You, you don't have to look too far to see how difficult it is to transition from a Hall of Fame coach. And – it's going to take time, but I think there was a lot there that you could be encouraged about. Like Syracuse really competed well with Tennessee, especially in that first half. Um, they, they led for most of the first half. They, they did some good things. You can point to that game and say, you know, they have to rebound better. They have to defend better. They have to lock in. Um, those are just signs of a, of a growing team, and I think there's things to be encouraged about, but it, it is going to take time for this, this program to get where, where Autry wants it to be. It is a process. Um, let's let's start at the top here. I think let's let's start with Benny Williams before we get into the games. Uh, you know, first game he played, comes off the bench, looks really good, knocks down a few jumpers, eight points. Doesn't play in the Gonzaga game. Uh, is just wearing the warm up. Never gets into game action. Autry's asked about a post game. He says no comment. No comment on Benny Williams. Doesn't seem like he's going to play in the third game. And then Benny Williams comes off the bench. Um, does okay. Uh, no, Benny Benny finished with... What did he finish with? That's <laughs> was it, eight, six, eight, six, yes, eight. I wanted to make sure it wasn't four. But yeah, six points, three of seven shooting, and two rebounds. Not bad. Uh, did get whistled for a tee. But let's, let's start there. Uh, how concerned are you guys about what happened in Maui and just how key is he for the team this year? Dom, are, are you concerned at all with Benny not playing for what well, essentially amounted to a one game suspension uh, for a, a second suspension for Syracuse this year? Where are you with, with Benny Williams? Where is your concern meter at? If, if we're doing it out of a scale of 10, probably a solid like seven or eight, because th- there's two factors. I think first off, this looks really bad following the Chance Westry injury because we don't have – Syracuse doesn't have the forward depth anymore to make up for a Benny absence of any kind. Um, you notice in a lot of these lineups, you're either playing Justin Taylor at the three, Chris Bell who, as a three, and I, I brought this up on, on our Slack channel that I think both of them like – they might have the size to be a three, but they're more like they play more like a two, especially on offense and honestly defensively too, because they don't really have the pound for pound to go against these bigger wings. So I think for starters, the value of a replacement there to use the the good old baseball reference that's a problem. But I, th- I think the other issue is the he he Benny isn't a perfect player, and I think consistency is probably his biggest issue. That goes back to his freshman year of one game he's doing well, another game it's like he plays thirty minutes and you didn't realize he was on the court half the time. And but the challenge is that he fills so many roles on this team as being a bigger forward. So you could play him at the four. He's he can box out. I think a big lesson we learned is that Naheem McLeod is an excellent shot blocker. Still, he is not the rebounder that he's not going to be grabbing 15 rebounds. And I compared to Jesse Edwards, let's say uh, last year, kind of in that um, he's able. He's not the most amazing three point shooter, but he also shot 36 percent last year and also on decent volume. He has shown an ability to quick catch, pump uh, pump fake, dribble in, take a mid-range, and he's been pretty automatic. I think we saw that in both these games, just how quick that releases. So you look at the value across the board, and you look at especially in that ACC where it's a lot of these bigger forwards, especially at the at the three, four, five. You Syracuse does not cannot afford to lose Benny because even if he's not peak, peak what his potential is, that is a valuable position in, ba- in college basketball, especially. It's especially valuable for, I think, this iteration of a Syracuse team that's lacking size, and I think that's lacking outside shooting. Yeah. Christian, wh- where's your concern meter w- with Benny Williams and just how important is he to Syracuse, do you think, in your mind? Uh, no, it's definitely very concerning because I think you saw clearly in the Gonzaga game without at least some sort of athletic presence at the four spot. Uh 
Syracuse just is just not going to rebound. And it's going to give up too many offensive rebounds on the flip side, not even get as many offensive rebounds on the on the um on their offensive side to compete with these teams. Uh, Gonzaga didn't have a great shooting day against Syracuse, but made up for it by absolutely dominating on the boards and on second chance points. So there has to be someone who at least if if something is wrong with Benny, who knows? We're not we're probably first of all probably never gonna know. Um, but if this persists into the next couple of games where Benny's gonna play one game, gonna not play another game, or whatever is gonna happen, there needs to be a mentality shift with Taylor and Bell. Because as much as we don't want it to be, they're your forwards. So they're going to have to do what forwards do, and that's grab rebounds. Now, we saw it a, a little bit of a better effort against Chaminade, but of course, again, this is Chaminade we're talking about, an undersized team that is in Division yeah. Two. So what they need to do is, as unfortunate as it is, they need to switch their mentality because those are the guys that are going to have to help grab rebounds. Yeah. Whoever plays the five is not going to be able to do it alone. Yeah, going into this game, like JJ Starling and Quadir Copeland, they can't be your leading rebounders. Like those forwards, and I, and I think Justin Taylor has done a good job. Of, he did a good job of it uh, against Chaminade. But those two guys can't be your leading rebounders. And I think that's why Benny is so important to this team. Now, taking a step back, I know it's it's got to be hard on Red to discipline Benny. It's got to be tearing him up. It can't be an easy decision for him. So whatever it is, this team needs Benny Williams. Like Christian, we talked about it on the last podcast going into, going into the Maui Invitational. He does things at the forward position that the other guys can't do. Chief chief among them is rebounding, right? Like Justin Taylor has held his own on the glass, but I think, you know, we, we know Benny Williams is, has a higher ceiling when it comes to rebounding than maybe a Justin Taylor, but he also gives you the ability to stretch it from the four spot, like Dom's talking about, you know, without Benny Williams, Syracuse is really going to be having some problems. I think at the forward spot, because the two forwards that they play, Justin Taylor and Chris, Ball, they want to play on the perimeter. They, they want to shoot shots. Benny can mix it up inside, but he also can hit that mid range where defenses have to respect that. I think the solution there, unfortunately is without Benny Williams, Maybe you have to move Malik Brown back to the four spot, but then you're playing Brown and then you're playing McLeod at the same time, and that's really going to clog up some of those driving lanes. So it's kind of like this push-pull relationship between the offense and the defense and, and the rebounding there without Benny Williams. That's why I think he's the key. He's he's so important to this team, not only for what he's able to do on the court, but I also think as, as a leadership in the leadership position as well as a junior is the most experienced member of this on this team. So whatever Benny's working through, he, he really needs to get it together. I, I think he's on, he's on some thin ice and without speculating, uh, I, I think it's key to Syracuse's season and certainly their potential to have Benny, a full, a fully available Benny Williams ready to go with the right mindset. Moving along from that, let's let's dive into the, these games a little bit. I'll take it back from the Tennessee game. You know, Syracuse, they, they came out, they punched first in that Tennessee game, looked good off the start. Judah Mintz got in a little bit of foul trouble, had to sit in the second half. Uh, the remainder of the first half didn't come back into the second half. From there, Syracuse is playing from behind, and it's, it's really tough to come from behind against a team like Tennessee that's a veteran team like that. What were your guys' takeaways from, from the Tennessee game specifically? Uh, Dom, starting with you. Well, I think the big thing is, first off, again, I think we can't stress enough the reputation Tennessee has, especially on defense, just like over the past couple of years. Like Syracuse actually putting up a good fight against like, like that caliber of team is honestly like I think still, again, we talked about it more on the optimistic side. I think what did stand out, though, clearly was, 
and this kind of goes back to the whole conversation on, on offense, especially who else is creating outside of Judah Mintz? Because we saw Judah Mintz, especially in that second half, kind of get hot late after he didn't have his first field going to like the nine minute mark or the nine thirty mark in the second half. Like he was, but then he caught fire at the end. But outside of that, it's like who else? Because Starling kind of had like a mixed on and off, I would say Maui invitational. Um, like he looked good in certain moments, but the other times he kind of struggled to finish around the rim. He he's, hasn't really done anything really beyond mid-range, to be honest. Like, even the three balls pretty much non-existent, at least through six games so far. Yeah. And you look at the rest of the roster, That's especially the, the bench, too. Like, Kyle Cuff has had his little heat check moments off the bench, kind of knocking down some open threes. Chris Bell is very much hot or cold. One game, he's scoring a career high. Then he gets another d- double digits, and then he goes two for 18 against Gonzaga. So it's like you have to live and die with Chris Bell not being, you know, a consistent 15 to 17-point scorer, let's say. You look at the bench, especially, I think, with like Malik Brown's not really much of an offensive player. He brings a lot of other stuff, but he's not much of an offensive creator. Kadir Copeland, great energizer guy, but very much not an outside shooter, plays better in transition than the half court. And I think that's Tough the big for him in that game. I was going to say, especially that game, we really saw like he played much better today against Shamanab, but compared to the Tennessee game, especially, it was pretty disastrous. Can't even lie there. So I think that's the biggest concern, I think, for especially Autry is. Mintz, especially, I think, from all all three levels of scoring, has looked really good so far. Especially, I'm very impressed with the outside shot, especially the he's been more willing on the catch and shoot to just let it fly rather than kind of pump fake, hesitate, then drive into traffic. Like he's been more be- he's been better with his timing. But I think the issue is that can Starling be the second score consistently? And if it's not going to be Starling, who kind of gets Syracuse to 70 points. If you're going to play the math game here, how how are those points distributed and who outside is going to help who outside of Mintz is kind of going to get Syracuse I think to that benchmark number. Yeah, the, the Quadier Copeland experience is is quite the adventure. Uh he was one rebound and two assists shy of the first triple double at Syracuse since Alan Griffin, I believe in the 1990s. So, uh great game against lesser competition uh as Bill Walton said, uh the team's best practice player uh shout out to bill walton learned a lot from bill walton during these last two broadcasts but uh yeah i don't know if you guys caught in the shamanad game quadir copeland kind of stepped out of bounds and audrey just let out an audible like quadir like just the frustration exasperation um you know with his with his sophomore forward there so um copeland yeah interesting player I think going back to that Tennessee game, though, the really the the biggest issue was kind of the rebounding, and that's what we've talked about. You know, mm-hmm. going even in the preseason up to the first three games and going into this event is just how big of a problem the rebounding is. Out rebounded by fifteen by Tennessee, not better the next night without Benny Williams. Gonzaga out rebound Syracuse by twenty, um, and then before finally, you know, beat beating up Shamanad on the glass, obviously. It, really like a non-starter there. You wouldn't expect Chaminade to be able to compete with Syracuse on the, on the glass, but Syracuse did out-rebound the, the Silver Swords 55-30. to 30. Christian, in, in your mind, is the, is the rebounding, specifically the defensive rebounding, is, is that the biggest glaring issue with this team, and, and do you see that persisting going into that LSU game and beyond? Oh, it's definitely going to persist. That's just the unfortunate nature of how this Syracuse team is built, and that's unfortunately, like you mentioned, that's going to be the biggest hindrance to this team like just touching quickly on the offense like you you know you know what you could get out of this offense um likewise you know what you could get out of this defense but on offense like i don't think that it wasn't necessarily a bad showing from the offense more so unlucky uh because Taylor and Bell aren't going to be that cold always from three. There were some pretty good looks that each of them had throughout the entire tournament, and they just weren't falling. So they're not going to be that cold from those type of high percentage. Quote those weren't were the Maui rims either. Like those rims were really tight. Uh, yeah, exactly. It actually compiled some data across the entire tournament and found that, yeah, teams across the board were shooting a lower percentage mm-hmm. than usual. And the same. Uh, so those, yeah. And the same can be said for the drives as well. I think starting would have had a much better tournament if some of the uh, his shots uh, were a kinder on the rims, um, um, because there are a lot of you know tough layups that on a different court probably would have gone in. Um, so I don't think necessarily offensively it was bad. The only thing on offense that needs to happen is you know what you're going to get from starting and mids. They're going to dribble, drive, and try and score. Can yeah. Bell and Taylor? do something else to get a shot. Um, 
because uh, a lot of what we've seen is still what we know from Syracuse, which is stand around and wait for something to happen. There's got to be something else, more honestly, more pick and rolls, pick and fades, uh, are would probably be very, pick, like this team should be a pick and roll team slash pick and fade team, um, uh, and they should probably implement that a lot more with the amount of dribblers that they have and the um, and to outside shooting talent that they have on offense. But on defense, yes, the, the biggest worry on this team is defensive rebounding because, as we mentioned, the Maui rims weren't kind, and that affected Tennessee and Gonzaga as well. What happened was that in those games, as we've mentioned, those teams just outright dominated Syracuse on the glass. And sometimes, a lot of the times, it just came down to either effort or a numbers advantage. And neither of those things can happen as you get deeper into the ACC schedule. What's the obvious answer on how to solve the rebounding issue? Because from a personnel standpoint, right? Like I, I think the answer would maybe be moving Malik Brown back to his natural four position, but offensively that just crushes your driving lanes. I, I think they I, don't want to do that. I, I think he, honestly, just get the numbers in the paint. Like I noticed he wants to play fast and with tempo, but you can still do that. If you have four guards at the, at the free throw line waiting for a rebound, or even two of the forwards at the mid block. Like this team will, because of its natural athleticism, they'll still find a way to tire out opponents in transition if they grab a defensive rebound. I mean, as we kind of mentioned last week, there are way too many cherry pickers on this team that want to drift. As soon as a shot is taken, start running the other way. Like, you've got to get the damn ball first before you actually think about a transition game. It's like a receiver in football trying to trying to turn up field before he makes the catch. Like, make the catch first before you use your athleticism to demolish your opponent. So I think it's just a pure numbers game. Get people in the damn paint. Yeah, it has to be a concerted effort. You know, I, I, I like what J.J. Starling's done. He's stuck his nose in there, and he's, he's grabbed a lot of rebounds. And when he gets it, he wants to push. I think, you know, we've talked about that too, is that's kind of what's prevented the the transition game a little bit is not being able to close out defensive stops and, and get out. Um, I just don't know that like the, this is like going to be solved in the near term. Uh, I just think that like if Benny Williams isn't up to speed and you're forced to play with Justin Taylor and Chris Bell, like Chris Bell's got to be able to get in there and grab more than two rebounds or one rebound a game. Like he's, if he's playing that forward spot, he's got to be able to get a couple um, Quadir Copeland rebounds well for his size. I mean, he, he gets in there, but you know, for all of the energy and enthusiasm that Quadir brings in sometimes in like in that Tennessee game where he's coming on at a tough stretch and he's prone to turnovers and, you know, making, making mistakes. So I just don't know that it's a, it's a solvable problem. You know, we, we did see Peter Carey early in that first game, just looked out of sorts, just looked like he wasn't really ready. Um, M- Monir Hima did get his first run of the season against Gonzaga. Um, I think he's just kind of like a Naheem McLeod light. Like he's just two inches shorter and he plays very similar to Naheem and Naheem gives you a little bit more. But then again with Naheem, I don't know that he's necessarily the best one-on-one defender in the post. Like we've seen him, if he's out kind of on that low block, like guys are able to just kind of go by him and finish on the opposite side. Or, um, you know, I, I think he's better in the zone, but then again, Syracuse doesn't want to play zone. So there's a lot of personnel problems that clash on this team that don't necessarily fit one direct play style. Uh, but, but Dom, you know, looking at this event as a whole and specifically maybe the first two games, I mean, what, what was the biggest issue? And then what do you think Syracuse can do to correct that, you know, going forward the rest of the way? I, I think what, I think it's honestly an identity issue, but not kind of like what we've been talking about with football, where it's like we have an identity and then wait, oh, never mind. I think this is just the early season growing pains of trying to figure out yeah. what Autry has. Christian, like you brought up the point of like this team has natural athleticism to get out in semi transition, like kind of like three on three, three on two situations. Maybe one option could be you can stagger. Like the, the problem with this team is that they're either forced to play small ball to keep the spacing and you put Malik at the five or you have to play bigger, but then you kind of sacrifice offensively. Maybe one yeah. solution would be 
find a way to stagger more the men's starling minutes. So maybe you have men's at the two and the three, you've got, let's say, Bell and Taylor. So you've got some perimeter guys, and then you put Brown and, and uh, McLeod together to kind of like you get a little bit of everything, and then you kind of switch out men's, put starling in. So maybe staggering those minutes, I think, could help offensively with keeping the pace and I think also dividing up the workload because I think the again, Mintz, I think, has proven after six games that he is taking the leap compared to last year already, sure. and we've still got a whole season to go. The question is the support around that. And I think also I think giving Starling more reps on the ball, I think would solve, honestly, a good amount of the problems. The, the other challenge for Autry that was hinted about, I know I wrote about it, I know all of us have talked about it, is the fit of Mintz and Starling as a backcourt, which I think honestly still works. Like this is not a, a complaint on that, but they do play a very similar style. They're this – yeah. They need the ball in their hand. They can be on the perimeter, but teams are going to be willing to let them take four or five threes a game if it means that they don't get free throws and trips to around the basket. So I think overall, especially again with these, the next five conference, uh, non-conference games, especially where you've got a mix of clearly teams that Syracuse should be very favored to be coupled with a couple iffier games that will be more competitive, especially in the neutral side on the road. I think this is where we're going to kind of see what the official identity of this team is. And I think Autry over these next four or five games is going to figure out like, what does he actually have and kind of finalize that rotation heading into mid-December. And the important thing is that Taylor and Bell can't let the Maui rims affect their performance because as Mintz and Starling get scoring in the paint, and they will score in the paint, teams are going to start double-teaming them and start commanding you know, attention to them with help defense. And so that's going to leave kick-out opportunities in theory for Mintz and, for uh, Bell and Taylor. So they, they've got to keep shooting because if they can't command yeah. attention – it's yeah. going to be really easy to stop Mintz and Starling with just double teams. And then eventually those drives to the rim are going to stop working. Just to add another thing on, on the defensive end, like there's got to be an aggressiveness to actually attack the down ball when it comes off the rim. And this yeah. was even a problem when Jesse was um, with Syracuse. There were so many times when um, uh, it just felt like the centers on Syracuse had butterfingers and the balls were just tipping off their the tips of their fingers and rolling out lazily for a a throw in, an inbounds under underneath. Side note, Syracuse does not know how to run an inbound play for some goddamn reason. <laughs> um, and also also and but you see that trickle down to pretty much everywhere else, everybody else on the team. We only saw it in this Shamanon game where I think this was the first time this season in the Shamanon game when people were actually jumping up to catch a rebound instead of letting the rebound fall down and either catching it here or letting it bounce and still catching it here on the rebound. And that's Mm -hmm. also what's leading to some of these rebounding troubles is that, yes, Syracuse might have three guys in the paint versus one, but the one guy on the other team is actually jumping up to try and get the ball instead of letting the ball come to him. So attack the ball on the rebound. Actually show a want to get the ball instead of letting it fall to you um, is something that I could see help Syracuse in its rebounding efforts. Yeah, it looks like there are certain scenarios where guys are just kind of looking around, waiting for somebody else on the team to rebound the ball Mm -hmm. when they should just go get it. Um, just going back to, to Judah Mintz really quick, I, I was a little bit in, encouraged uh, in the Chaminade game where he didn't really feel the need or compelled to try to score in that game. Uh, I think that's that's really important because I think for the through the first five games, he's really had to carry the offense. Like when the offense has been breaking down, um, he's kind of been the guy to attack off the dribble and, and you know force force a play. For him, I think once he gets by his first guy, he's just kind of in his mind so determined to score that he might not see the play develop around him. I think he's got to be able to make that secondary read and find a guy and, and make a pass. Um, I have no problem with him scoring, maybe as much as other people do, but I, I just was encouraged in that Chaminade game that he was really kind of comfortable to take a back seat in the scoring, and it seemed a little bit more important that, to allow other guys to get involved and get their scoring up. Uh, go, going back to your guys' point, I like Chris Bell and, and Justin Taylor absolutely have to score for this team. Like it, it can't just be JJ Starling and, and Judah Mintz. Like those guys have to produce. It was a tough couple games for Justin Taylor. I think there's a way for this team to utilize him a little bit more. Christian, maybe as you're saying, is like 
sort of like a pick and pop. You know, Syracuse runs that double fist set. They have to they have to run him off screens a little bit more. I think they have to look for him more as a shooter and try to establish him. Um, it's a little bit more of a tough tough ask for him to you know just kind of get shots off kickouts or just be kind of like a third or fourth option out there. I think they can involve him more. I think they can utilize him more, and they're going to need his his point production. Dom, or, do you, maybe, do you... or maybe also because we make the Justin Taylor Buddy Beheim comp- uh, comparison a lot, why not also use him like what they did with Buddy in his senior year, where he at times took over ball handling duties? I mean, we've seen it enough times, and even with Bell now, now Bell, Bell has actually impressed me that he's actually improved a little bit with his dribbling. I was just going to say the, that too. Uh, that... Over this Maui tournament, he's definitely improved in his dribbling, shown a bit more willingness to put the ball on the floor and drive. Yeah. And Taylor's actually, uh, and Taylor's always had that. So why not give those guys some ball handling duties for a couple of possessions? And then if they don't find something, you stick judah slash jj in the corner and have them go for a baseline drive because a baseline drive is going to be just as effective maybe even more so than a alley a typical alley drive than what we see from from them i don't know if they need justin taylor to like handle the ball up top though like they i think they have that handle like maybe against pressure is like a, a secondary release option but like up top i mean they have those guards that are able to play like i think they can get him the ball like maybe like elbow extended and like give yeah. him like a post touch and let him do maybe like the buddy Bayheim like well yeah you know, no I'm not suggesting yeah I'm I'm not suggesting buddy take the ball up field up the court what I'm suggesting is yeah give the ball to give the ball to Justin or 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 Chris and let them dribble around the perimeter a bit and like tell them hey it's okay for you to dribble around the perimeter to move your yeah, guy before making an attack to the hoop instead of standing and then pump faking and then either shooting or driving. Like it's okay to move around with the ball a bit. Uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm with you. I think I think that's also something we see with Judah and JJ at times is that yes, the ball is stagnant because they're also stagnant. And they're waiting for something to develop as well magically. So don't be afraid to dribble around with it. Um, because I mean, God, Jose Alvarado is not your defender. <laughs> it's kind of like the big man theory where like you got to give the big man a touch you know keep him involved in the offense keep him satisfied i think that's similar for justin taylor like like get him some touches on the ball just so he's comfortable um yeah obviously a a tough tournament for him he didn't score another of the first two games but um you know in that chaminade game in the second half he really he came out you know he hit three threes uh he was able to get his defender to bite on a pump fake and hit a pull up two it kind of felt like that was an important moment for Justin Taylor. Not that, you know, he's not confident or, you know, can't score. Or he doesn't think he can't score. But just to get his rhythm back going into that LSU game. Uh, Dom, Dom, did you sense that as well, that just getting Justin Taylor into, into rhythm and making a few shots was was important for him going forward? I was. I didn't want the point to be lost from that you brought up, James, a few minutes ago. I think I was also very happy that Mintz honestly took a backseat offensively. I think a lot of the team, I think it mainly Bell, Taylor, and Kadir Copeland, those three especially, of getting some reps on the ball, proving that they can still be valuable on multiple and multiple ways on the court. I think this was huge for all of them. And it's, it's, it's so important because Syracuse, again, is already thin with Westry being out and with Benny's status kind of being like still a little bit ish in limbo that these guys are, especially I think now that they're in their sophomore year, like they've got a year's worth of experience and they're playing either the same role or in Bell and Taylor's case, much larger roles compared to last year under Bayheim. So I think this is, they're so critical. And we, we've talked about, of course, like their, their need to kind of be more in the double digits and points and their ability to space the floor. But I think just even them being wing sized, because that was the whole value with a lot of the additions Achi brought in the offseason. It was that you had the huge seven foot four McLeod. You had all these bigger wings that can kind of play three, four, five, even some two guard. You have Mintz and Starling who are each like six three. They've got decent wingspan. That was the whole idea with this team was to have like this team of just freak athletes who can kind of like play multiple positions. They weren't just stuck to like Judas only a point guard or you know Taylor's only a two. And I think. Getting a game like this, I think that was a good confidence booster. Now you've got it, – it, pro- it proved, I think, for them especially that 
Tennessee and Gonzaga again, like that is very, very tough competition. Sometimes you just need to see the ball go in the basket a couple times. That's what a lot of NBA players and even a lot of college players will just say, or I know I've, I've heard that it just, it feels good sometimes just see your shot going two or three times in a row. Um, sure. And again, the big thing will be, you go back to LSU or back in Syracuse, like that's going to be a, a, another morale booster opportunity there um, being back in the home crowd. And I think that that'll be a very critical game, but this one, especially again, Mintz taking the back seat, letting the rest of the guys kind of handle the offense, I think was very, very smart. I, I would imagine that was a, a, the game plan going in, given that they knew Autry and company knew what Shamanad was as an opponent compared to Gonzaga in Tennessee, but it was definitely a, a worthwhile strategy. I'm hoping it'll prove fruitful these next few weeks here. Yeah, and along those lines, Christian, you know, you heard Autry kind of in the preseason say he wants to play with depth, saying as recently he wants to play nine guys, uh, played ten tonight. What have you seen from the Syracuse bench in this tournament and then going forward? I mean, what do you make of kind of the depth? Is it is it sustainable? Um, you know, when you look at guys like Kyle Cuff, Quadir Copeland, and Benny Williams now, what do you see from the, the depth in the Syracuse bench going forward? I think it's definitely going to shorten because um, as much as Copeland's had a good had a couple of good games, it's come against much lesser competition, and we've already seen his influence not be as good in the um, against Tennessee and Gonzaga. Uh, so um, it's going to shorten to an eight man bench. I think it's going to be it's going to be uh, Cuff, Brown, and Benny um, if Benny doesn't get back in the starting lineup or. Who knows? One of the one of the forwards, so whoever whoever's the odd man out of the Bell Taylor Benny situation. Let's put it that way. But it's going to be one of those guys, Brown and Cuff. I think those are the guys that eventually, eventually, I know Red wants to play with a deeper bench, but eventually you just got to have to throw your hands up and say, okay, these are my options. Um, and at least at the at the very least, it doesn't seem like. Uh, he's in a Bayham situation where he literally only has one option off the bench that you trust. I think you do have decent options to trust in Brown, Cuff, and then one of the three forwards. So it's not as dire of a situation as what we would maybe have seen in Bayheim under later years. But the pipe dream of a deep 10-man rotation, I think, is unfortunately getting the kibosh really quick. Speaking of throwing your hands up, uh, one guy who does throw his hands up a lot is Naheem McLeod. Um, definitely a big interior presence in in this event. The one person who was enamored with Naheem McLeod about the last two games was was one Bill Walton. We got to talk about Bill Walton a little bit. I learned a lot from him uh, <laughs> during, during this last couple game stretch. Uh, I learned that Bill Walton. I'm surprised that he never called a Syracuse game before, and it's apparent that most of the Syracuse fans didn't realize that either. <laughs> no doubt uh and it makes sense like you know he was doing pac 12 stuff and you know he's out on the west coast with dave bash so you know he'd probably not ample opportunity to do too many syracuse games but was a little bit surprised to learn that he hadn't done one in the past um but bill walton i did learn he he has been to turning stone at some point i don't know when that was but he knows at least where turning stone is uh, we also learned that Bill Walton is a big fan of colors, to nobody's surprise. He's also and, an incredible fan of uh, Jeremy Grant, by the way. I swear you heard his name at least like 15 times in the over the course of these two games. <laughs> I don't know why the, the Jeremy Grant references just kind of kept coming. I think he was tired of talking about Naheem Nelson or Nelson McLeod <laughs> or whatever. Uh, Bill Walton is an experience. Um, I, I guess for, for some Syracuse fans are a little bit frustrated, which I get because like, Bill Walton is just such an unserious color guy, and if you want to be locked into a serious game, he's not the guy for that. I think he was the perfect guy for the Chaminade game. Like, there's nobody <laughs> better to call a game in a non-competitive blowout where one team just looks like they want to be anywhere well, other. Well, than the, yeah, this this slate this slate is perfect for Bill Walton tonight because first of all, it's Chaminade, and so Bill Walton will make any game entertaining. And then it's beloved UCLA next, which is happening right now against Gonzaga. So, like, that is – this is the perfect slate of Bill Walton games to digest. Yeah. The Bruins, the Conference of Champions, come <laughs> on. One of the nine best programs in the Pac-12. Now, Bill Bill Walton is great. Um, I'm I'm a big fan. I don't know. Where, where do you guys fall on, on 
the Walton-isms. It just shows you the age of the Syracuse fan base. Sorry, guys. <laughs> a lot of you are from an older generation. Dom and I love Bill Walton because he is dumb, and that is awesome. <laughs> he brings character to the game of basketball. Yeah, that's, you know, he made Pac-12 basketball interesting. I mean, you're telling me you're yep. going to watch Cal come into the Dome next year and not think of Bill Walton there? Come on. Who's, who's right. willingly turning into, in the past 12 years, an Arizona State, Oregon State Pac-12 basketball game at night? If no Bill Walton's on the call, you willingly turn on to that. You, you will willingly turn, turn on to that game. You will turn on to that game to see if Bill Walton brought a cactus into the arena. and. <laughs> You will turn on to that game to see if Bill Walton will eat a lit candle. <laughs> to the oh, old out there, yes, that is something that happened. There were gifts of it on the internet. <laughs> Bill Walton is a trip. Uh, okay, switching gears here, you know, kind of going forward to you know the LSU game. It's an opponent that Syracuse on paper should should probably beat. Um, coming off of these two games. Are, are you guys – do you think there's anything to the idea of, you know, playing these two top let's – let's call it 15 teams, identifying some weaknesses here, and that's going to help you kind of throughout the rest of the season, but specifically in this critical non-conference stretch starting with LSU, um, where you really, you really have an opportunity here and it becomes important to kind of pick off some quality teams in the non-conference before you get into conference play. Do you, do you think this is helpful for them, or or do you take the other side and say, you know, Christian, maybe their maybe their confidence is a little bit hurt after losing those two games, and and you can drop a game like the LSU the LSU game. Um, I'd be shocked if their confidence was dropped at all. I mean, this is a, a very young team, and I don't think I don't. Yes, it's a young team, but I don't think just in the modern day of basketball that happens. If it if it does happen. There's a much bigger issue to be talked about, um, but I, I just don't think that happens these day and age. This day and age, um, but the, the only thing that you would probably worry about just in this stretch between in this December stretch is something that we've talked about, James, before. It's just that the schedule isn't as heavy as it would normally be under a Jim Beheim rule. Under a Jim Beheim rule, Syracuse would be playing every Division One New York basketball team under the sun in a it's in a five-week stretch in december and there aren't that many of those um so like you could argue that more match sharpness um is is a thing that could be worried about you know cork rust um after you know taking you know a couple a couple more days off than you probably would normally see a syracuse team um but I don't think it's a bad thing to ever play tougher competition because, like you said, Syracuse now has a clear idea of where it is good and where it is bad. So, not only is that something that you can and what it looks like, yeah, and what those top teams look like. Mm -hmm. Like you probably already played Tennessee. Like who in the ACC is going to be better than Tennessee? I was going to say I was going to bring that up that you've got. Duke, Miami. Miami you, you, I was like Duke, Miami. Go Canes. Unfortunately, my my alter ego. UNC on a good day, maybe Clemson, and then after that, like when Andy Katz brought up, like, oh, like Q's could finish between fifth and eighth in the conference. Like, it actually was a pretty true statement because the that like I, I think Duke is still a pretty like you know dominant team moving forward. I think Miami. Like, I'm not even being biased. Like, they're they're they look the same from an offensive and a talent standpoint as they did last year. Uh, with Larry Nega there. But after that, it kind of is very much like you catch a team on – like look at Virginia, for example, where you catch them on the wrong night and they can barely score 40 in a in a game. So there is a – there is a – there is a – like the, the challenging part, I think, kind of if we're looking at the schedule is that um, – to answer that question, by the way, like I think this is a good confidence booster. It's at least a confidence booster for the fans because remember that we were in the ACC Big Ten Challenge and Illinois waxed Syracuse like 73 yeah. to like 40-something. Yeah. The fact that – they were in these Tennessee and Gonzaga games for 30 of the 40 minutes is a good sign. And more importantly, as you guys were talking about, this is the, besides maybe that Duke game on the road, just cause that's a tough, that's a tough game. Like no matter what you do, th- these are two of the, what, three or four hardest games all year. Uh, if we're talking regular season and you're looking at the next upcoming sway where you've got 
like Virginia on the road, I think I think LSU followed by that Virginia game. Those two games are just going to be so big because LSU yeah. should be a very good win at a conference, an SEC school. Like that's just a good, like very good morale booster. But that Virginia game on the road, I think with Virginia in this current state where they look a little bit on the, I'm not going to say that they're beatable, but they're definitely more, they're at least more beatable than they were compared to the middle of last decade. Um, so I think there's a good confidence booster. And again, you'd rather have the growing pains happen earlier rather than happen in January, February. And I think that's what happened last year was the it felt like every time Syracuse had a win or two, it just completely plummeted and there was no consistency and no identity. And let's yeah, remember no question. Yeah, let's remember this is Adrian Autry's first year as a head coach. Like <laughs> you forget he's that. he's no longer, you know, just focusing on you know coaching individual players or position groups on the sideline he's trying to manage a game and so this is a valuable experience for him also to say hey i was i my team got close to two of the top 11 teams in the nation and just couldn't finish it out so now i know that okay what coaching adjustments do i have to make mid game so that if we get into that opportunity again we can do X, Y, and Z in order to make that game closer and give us a chance. So yeah. this is valuable experience for Autry as well to say, okay, let's not just be a uh, a individual manager. Let's be a team manager and figure out what I need to do adjustment wise in order to, you know, change up something or tell my team to focus on this area more in order to facilitate a win. Yeah, he's getting exposure to those real live, real-time coaching decisions that you have to make where, you know, those decisions are unclear. In hindsight's twenty twenty. you get to the end of the game and you see what worked and what didn't. But I think any coach in his first year that would say he's 100% certain of all the decisions that he's making at, the, at, at any given time, um, I, I think it'd be a little bit disingenuous. So he, he's getting exposure to, to that. And he's he's willing to make those adjustments. I think that's the good sign. Now, it, it hasn't always worked, like specifically in the Maui, like kind of going to the zone late against Tennessee. It was almost as if it was like the the New Hampshire game all over again, where Judah Mitz was in foul trouble and you got to revert to two three zone to save the day. You know, it, it didn't work. And of course, it, it's it's not going to work against a team like Tennessee that's a veteran. You know they've got veterans and they're they've got an experienced head coach who've, who've been there before and been in those situations. A lot of these players are sophomores; they haven't been in these situations yet. You know, Judah Mintz obviously logged heavy minutes last year, but these other guys, you know, they they haven't been in these situations. JJ Starling played in Notre Dame last year; he hasn't been in these situations with this team. So I, I think that's an important point as well. Like this is a process; it's going to take time to develop. This was about the expected result. But I think, Dom, kind of going back to your point a little bit, is like they have the playing hard part down. And the skills and the experience, that will follow. But that's what you want to see out of a Syracuse team, one that competes hard the whole game. And, yeah, maybe they're not as experienced as a Tennessee or Gonzaga, but they were able to hang with them because they have that playing hard part down. I'm also um, real quick coming from the angle of covering the uh, women's basketball last year under Felicia Leggett-Jack where it was the same thing. Like there were some frustrating games early on where they blew a 21-point yeah. lead to Penn State. They could they barely beat Yale by two points, and Yale was like nowhere near a tournament team. Like there are growing pains, but – it's kind of worth it in the end when you get, especially for a first, like like at Jack is there because she's an experienced coach, but Autry also has coaching experience being the associate for associate head coach for a while under Bayheim. And he even like having experience, it is different when you are commanding a new program, whole bunch of new players, identity, connecting with fans, all that sort of stuff. So I, I think the, oh, wow. again, the, this, this is part of the process. It's it's only – we are game six of the Autry era. We've got at least a good amount of – a chunk of time left to go, even just for this year alone. This is what other programs around the country deal with when they have transitions and coaching changes. And, yeah, it is a, it is a process. You don't just snap your fingers and it'd be great if there was a magic wand and you could just experience great success right away. But in reality, that's just not usually how it works. Uh We'll we'll wrap up on one thing uh, before before I do, guys. What what did we miss? What else do we have to talk about before we wrap up here? I, I like to give a quick shout out to Kyle Cuff. I I he he's a little bit uh, wild, kind of going to the rim sometimes. But honestly, like he's 
through six games, 35% from three. He's been like a pretty decent ball handler in his stretch. But also I think him just like, especially on offense, him just kind of like being on the perimeter, maybe a sneaky dark horse candidate to get the ninth man rotation, like just like 10 to 15 minutes a night, kind of be the spark plug off the bench if like a mint or a starling's in foul trouble. So that's my only other shot I think I'm missing uh, uh, kind of on the bench, the reserves especially. Yeah, I think the big I th- I I honestly think he should be the first card off the bench. I'm I you know, as much as you like Copeland's energy, I just don't think he has enough to consistently produce against some of the tougher competition. And I think Cuff has at, at least shown that he can, you know, knock a shot a shot down um and a key shot down against some tougher competition. So I think if um when push comes to sub, I think eventually Cuff's gonna be the first card off the bench. Yeah. Okay. And just last one for me, you know, I think kind of going back to the scheduling a little bit, you know, we talked about kind of the down ACC. There will be opportunities for those wins. Like, Dom, you mentioned, you know, Duke, Miami, uh, Clemson's pretty good with one Joe Girard. Um, There's going to be opportunities for wins. But I think now that you've seen this and you you know what happened in the Maui, like it it does become a little bit more important to pick off one of these non-conference opponents. So specifically – yeah, you have the LSU game at home, but also, you know, kind of the the road and neutral games. You know, you have that game at Georgetown. You have the neutral against Oregon. Um, Syracuse, obviously, undefeated at home still. But I think I think you're going to have to win one of those games, maybe two, um, just to kind of show that you, you were able to do some things outside in the non-conference. So um, we can wrap up with that. Uh, Dom, I think you're going to be on site for that Georgetown game on December 9th. This is correct. I think for first time going on the road for a game. So very exciting opportunity there. There we go. So for those of you who aren't already following Dom, uh, be sure to give him a follow. Does a lot of great work on the women's basketball side, but he's he's going to come over and do some more of the men's stuff too and uh, get on the road for that Georgetown game and, and some others. So, um, yeah, Christian, Dom, anything you guys want to say before we get out of here? At least it's not football. <laughs> <laughs> At least uh, it's yeah. not no, nothing else. I, nothing else of mine. I am I the, notebook has, the notebook has been emptied, and it is almost one in the morning. I only <laughs> have a, I only have a weekend in the head coach stretch before I have to. I can push this football season out of mind because <laughs> boy, has this has the past couple of weeks really tested my patience with football. <laughs> We'll leave it there. Uh, for those of you listening in, if you're coming to us on Thursday, happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the time with your your family and your friends, and we'll see you on the other side. So for Christian DeGuzman, for Dom Chapapone, I'm James <laughs> Zuba. Take care. <laughs>